There are lots of names for dad. Father, pa, dada, dad, pop, poppy, pappy, papa, abba, and our son and daughter there in Japan, papa-san, they're finding out. And of course, daddy. But no matter what you call your dad, he is special. Amen? Let's give him our appreciation this morning. Thank God for dad. For daddy. The kids had talked mom into getting a hamster. They promised to take care of him, whom they promptly named Danny. Within two months, predictably, mom was the only one taking care of Danny. One day, mom decided enough was enough. Danny would have to be given to a new owner. She called the kids together to tell them. One child said, I'll sure miss him. He's been around here for such a long time. The other child remarked, maybe he can stay if he ate less and wasn't so messy. But mom was firm. She said, it is time to take Danny to a new home. Danny, the kids wailed. We thought you said daddy. (laughs) Oh, that's a relief, amen. Thank God they don't want to get rid of us. David Blankenhorn The Institute for American Values said this, the most urgent domestic challenge facing the United States in the 21st century is the recreation of fatherhood as the primary social role for a man. A good father does three basic things. He provides for his family, according to uh, David Blankenhorn. He provides for his family. He protects his family. And one that's so often missing, he gives spiritual and moral guidance. The great uh, English writer, a great thinker, philosopher, C.S. Lewis wrote, fatherhood must be at the core of the universe. And so this morning, I'm delighted to kind of take a little break from our study on parables, six marks of spiritual fatherhood. Let's all bow forward to prayer. Father, we thank you that uh, you care for us. Thank you, God, for fathers in our lives and some with good memories, perhaps today, others with not. But we thank you, God, that you are a spiritual father, and you bind up every wound, and Lord, you can help us to rejoice in that which is good. And we pray that, Lord, this morning you would collect all of our minds into this wonderful word in Christ's name, amen. Let's go, if you would, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, in this epistle, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we find the Apostle Paul doing some spiritual house cleaning. In so, he is cleaning up some concerns in the church, and as his responsibility and right was, he was dealing with their problems. And so, uh, repeatedly, as he was speaking to them, he reaffirmed his relationship to them. And he did so with many metaphors. For example, he called himself in relationship to the church in chapter 3 and verse 5. He said, I'm a servant, or I serve you. And really, that's the word minister. In verse 6 of that same chapter, he called himself a farmer. Remember, he said that some plant and some water and uh, some get the harvest. In chapter 4 and verse 1, he called himself a slave of Christ. And as a slave of Christ, he had the responsibility to do what Christ wanted him to do. He also said that he was a steward or a manager of the mysteries of God. And then in chapter 3 and verse number 10, he said, he used a building metaphor, and he said that God has made me a wise master builder. 
And uh, everybody knows that a pastor is a builder. In 2 Corinthians, he called himself an ambassador. He said a preacher is an ambassador. And it represent, he represents God in this foreign land. And I will tell you, this world is becoming more foreign all the time, for sure. He also then used the idea of a legal metaphor when he said a preacher is a witness. The idea is that someone has to witness the truth in a court of law. And he said, that's a preacher. We're in God's great court, and I am simply telling you what I've seen and what I know, what I feel, and what I touch. And so he gives himself many metaphors to describe his relationship to this church whom he dearly loved. But then there is one metaphor which uh, is perhaps uh, sums up all of it, especially when it comes to the pastor-people relationship, and that's what we find in chapter 4 and verse 15, if you would please. Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. And here he relates himself as though he was the father of the church. Perhaps uh, there is some merit to the Roman Catholic tradition of calling the pastor a father. But here in this uh, story and in this uh, uh, scripture, we find uh, Paul saying, I'm a father. And he was saying, because I'm a father, that's why I'm going to be a little straightforward with you. I'm going to be a little tough on you. I'm going to just kind of get down to the, the brass tacks here. He said, you might have 10,000 instructors. It is the Greek word pedagogos, which is mean a schoolmaster. Uh, especially a family of some means might take a, a, a slave or a servant, an employee, employee really, uh, but one who was uh, kind of indentured to them, but was a, one who uh, had a, a little higher position. And they would be called a schoolmaster. The dad would go off to work. He would take care of what he had to do. Mom would run the chairs of the family, but this schoolmaster, this pedagogos, as the Greek word is, would take the child and be responsible to make sure that they ate physically well, made sure that they would get the right clothes on, and make sure they would get to school. They would also be responsible for moral and educational training. And so Paul said, you might have many instructors, 10,000 of them, so he kind of moves on to hyperbole here where he just says, you know, uh, 10,000 instructors. They may not have that many instructors in their life, but even if you did, you will still only have one father, one father. And I am your father today, and I want you to listen to me, is what he's saying. And then in verses 14 through 21, expands on that. And he said, because of that, here is how I'm going to treat this situation. He said, uh, as an apostle and, and as your pastor, as it were, I am your spiritual father. And I think as he interacted with them, he draws out these principles about what a spiritual father is really like. Now, I know sometimes dads might be intimidated. You might be a young dad. Others might be thinking about being a dad. Others may not be. But in each case, I think as we look at here, I think these six items can give us a handle on what spiritual fatherhood really is. You might know what it is to, you know, train them in soccer or in some sport, but to train them spiritually, God gives us six ways. I think it's awesome. Let's go through them. First of all, six marks of spiritual fatherhood. In verse 14, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. 
I think the first mark of a spiritual father is that he is relational. First and foremost, he finds a way, some way to personally connect because he loves. Notice what it says. As my beloved sons, as a spiritual father, I see you, each of you in the church, as a son in the Lord. Beloved. Beloved. Paul loved this church deeply. The word here is the uh, Greek word agape. It is the strongest kind of love, not just a brotherly love, a friendship love, phileo love, but a godlike love. The word, Greek word agape is used over 250 times in the New Testament. I love what Dr. John Lapp said. It's a great definition. I think you might write it down at some point or, get the, or listen to the podcast here, but it is an unconditional commitment, a great definition of agape, an unconditional commitment to actively pursue and secure the good of another through sacrificial behavior. I'll give that one more time. Agape love, an unconditional commitment to actively pursue and secure the good of another through sacrificial behavior. With that definition in mind, here's what the Apostle Paul said, you are my beloved and I am willing to sacrifice. You are my beloved and I'm actively pursuing your good physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. He wanted to meet their needs. He wanted to fulfill their hopes. He wanted to dispel every fear that they had. He wanted to strengthen them in weakness. And that's the same as God. That's why it's agape love. He said, you are my agape love. It's actually a form of the word. It's interesting. It's like you're my little loved one, kind of like some, I know my wife uh, has a Hispanic background and Sometimes we hear the word miha or miho, and you know, it's a kind of, it's almost what he's saying here is you are my agape one, you're my loved one, my beloved. When you love somebody, there's a tremendous concern for their welfare, physical and emotional and spiritual. And there's no way that you can't be without passion in a situation like that. And that's what Paul was saying. He said, I know I'm tough on you. I know I'm straightforward in my teaching and my preaching, but he said, because you're my beloved sons, I warn you. Now, for many years, I've been the privilege of decades now of pastoring the home church, Bible Baptist, and every once in a while, someone will come to the church and they'll tell someone or maybe even uh, say so to me in some form or another, boy, I'll tell you one thing, pastor, you sure get all worked up about the stuff you talk about. Well, I'll tell you why I do, because it matters to me, and your life matters to me, and the lives of my people matter to me, and that's why I believe there's a hope and this agape love for people to walk in the truth. I want your life to have the favor of God, and that's why it's agape love, and that's what Paul said here. He said, for a father to have the right attitude, he must have a godlike love, a sacrificial love, one that goes to the end of the earth for their children. I read a funny story. You may have heard about the guy who fell in love with an opera singer. He hardly knew her. And since the only view of that singer was through binoculars, and that from the third balcony row, he didn't know her much, but was convinced he could live happily ever after if he was married to a woman who had a voice like that. He scarcely noticed that she was really considerably older than he and didn't even really Notice she walked with a limp, but I'll tell you one thing, her mezzo-soprano voice would take them through ever would come if he could just marry her. And after a whirlwind romance and a hurry-up ceremony, they were off for their honeymoon. They go to the hotel room, and 
As he watched, his chin dropped to his chest. She plucked out her glass eye, plopped it in the container on the nightstand, pulled off her wig, ripped off her false eyelashes, yanked out her dentures, unstrapped her artificial leg, and smiled at him as she slipped off her glasses that hid her hearing aid. Stunned and horrified, he gasped. He said, oh, goodness sake, woman, start singing. (laughs) He thought he could live with anything as long as she had a voice. (laughs) The fact is, words do come easy, and sometimes it's challenging to follow through on what we, uh, the kind of situations we get ourselves into. Here the Apostle Paul said, the kind of love I have is difficult sometimes when your children aren't behaving But he said, because I have agape love, it demands action. And so the first uh, fact of uh, spiritual fatherhood is relational. We connect on a spiritual level because we care. Verse number 14, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. He is also scriptural. We need to understand the word warn here. Warn is not uh, to harass or to criticize, but actually it is actually quite a kind of a soft word. It simply means to um, caution or to put in mind or to uh, lovingly critique. A spiritual father sees a weakness, and because it's a weakness and because it really is something that needs to be corrected, he loves enough to say something. Because a father loves his child... He knows that if he doesn't correct this, it's not going to be good. He wants to make sure that he has the best education possible. He does the best thing that he can in his life. And so it says, you are willing to warn them. And what's the best way to warn a child? Is with scriptural principles. He's a scriptural father. You say, well, what's the best way to be a father, a spiritual father? Simply this, to share the word. You'd say, well, man, I'm no preacher. I'm no theologian. You don't have to be. The fact is, just whenever you're together, let the Word of God come out of your mouth. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be a lot. But make sure that Scripture, even if it's not the exact word, but make sure it's a scriptural principle. You know, God gave us a tragic biblical illustration of a father who failed to caution his children. It's found in First chapter, or, or excuse me, First Samuel chapter 3. You know, perhaps if you've been in church very long, you know the story of uh, the prophet, the preacher, the man of God, Eli. What an amazing, mighty man of God he was, a great leader in Israel. But where he was uh, great and powerful and needful for the nation, tragically, he really was a failure as a father. His own sons just began to mock his faith, and they just did all kinds of terrible things and did so immoral things, in fact, even did so in the temple. It was amazing. It was terrible. When his father found out about it, and you would think he would have seen it, but uh, he had to be told about it. When the father finally came to them, uh, the scripture gives uh, a summary of the father. In 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 13, it says, he restrained them not. He restrained them not. He never warned them, or as the word is, he never even lovingly critiqued what they were doing. In fact, when he found them, he asked them the question, why did you do that? (laughs) What a strange and silly and very obvious where he was going with that. Why did you do that? Why did you commit sin with these women in the temple? Why did you do that? Well, there's really no excuse. 
But it sounds like he was looking for one. He was looking for a Twinkie defense. Maybe you had too many Twinkies. Maybe you didn't get enough sleep. Maybe whatever the case is. And we see that so often where we shift the blame to the school or to society when the fact is they need a father who's willing to warn. Actually, the word is there to warn, to admonish, to be firm. You don't have to be harsh unless, of course, their mouth calls for strokes, as the book of Proverbs says, and sometimes you have to give it very harshly. But the best form of warning, I believe, is Scripture. And the best form of warning, a warning is corrective. And uh, to make sure that we get out in front of the issue and say, you know what, we just need to talk about this. A green light that turns to yellow, a rumble strip on the side of the road, a flashing traffic light, a flicker of the house lights at a concert maybe you go to, buzzers in your car. They all have one thing in common. It is somebody who cares enough to warn. And that's what all these things mean. And a father is a warning light. A father is a caution light. A, a father is a rumble strip on the side of the road. And that's what a father is meant to be. He has to warn. It says he's relational. He is scriptural. And then in verse 15, he is intentional. Look at verse 15, though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Now, what was he meaning? He was saying, I've had the privilege and joy of leading you to Christ personally. And that is uh, what a father is, isn't it? A father is someone who has a child. But here he was saying that uh, I am your spiritual parent. Now, it's one thing to be a father in the sense that you fathered a child, but it's another to be a spiritual father. There are many, I'm sad to say, who never actually father anything spiritual in another person. And that's what Paul's talking about here. You may remember Paul's beginning in Corinth. We've been actually going to the book of Acts, and we found in chapter 18, he ends up in Corinth. There he connects with Aquila and Priscilla, who were both uh, leather workers, tent makers like he was. He begins to start a little church in their home there. It begins to expand. Slaves begin to come. They're getting converted, and it kind of starts from the bottom up. And pretty soon, there were uh, notable people getting saved, and there was this wonderful church started in Corinth. And Paul made that happen. He purposely, intentionally went to Corinth to make a spiritual difference. He was intentionally. That's what it says here. I begot you in Christ. But I love what he says here. Notice what it says. And he shows the very clear human equation. He said, I begot you, for in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. In Christ Jesus, through the gospel. Notice the three things that allows us to make a spiritual difference. And these aren't on your notes here, but you can take these down. Notice what it says, in Christ Jesus. It's a God thing. It's the power of God that helps me make a spiritual difference in Christ Jesus. I can't do it on my own, but in Christ Jesus, I can make a difference. And notice what he says, in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. The gospel is also included. The gospel is the good news. That's the written word. And so with the power of Christ and the power of the written word, then he gives the third factor, I did it. Now, folks, the power of God's everywhere. But that doesn't mean people get changed. The scripture is everywhere, but that doesn't mean that people get changed. It has to be that human instrument. And that's what he's saying here. He is saying that I did this. I did it. 
Because of my actions, you have been blessed spiritually. Isn't that what Jesus said in the Gospels? He said, pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. God is the one who wins the lost, but He needs laborers. Who will be a father who will labor for the gospel? And that's what he's saying here. We need to be intentionally spiritual. That means we intentionally make a difference in the life of our child. We take them to church. We don't just send them to church. I was uh, yesterday, I think it was, or a couple days ago, I'm not sure when, but I I think it was yesterday because I came here and I was getting ready to do some work around the grounds here as I kind of do on Saturday mornings for a few hours and just do my little part. But I was thinking, how many times over the years I've been in church in 63 years, hardly ever missed a Sunday, maybe a couple times in all those years. Why? Because when we were growing up, it was never a question if we were going to go to church. We never woke up on Sunday morning and said, you want to go to church today? No, I mean, that's just what you do. On Sunday morning, you go to church. You go to church in the morning. You go to church at night. I mean, you go to church on Wednesday night. That's just what you do. It is just something that's part of your family life. It is a church-centered existence. It's a Christ-centered church. It's a, it's a life that's just focused on the Lord. And I thought about how intentional my parents were. And that, they just put a desire in me. Just like, you know, uh, in Asia, they feed these little children rice and when we visited there, I mean, they have rice for breakfast, and they have rice for lunch, they have rice for dinner, they have just about every meal, they have rice. And no wonder when they're an adult, they all love rice. And when you're from uh, you know, Ireland, you love potatoes, and no matter where you're from, there are certain things that you like because you've been giving it to it from the time you're a child. It has been intentional. And that's why we take our children to church. We don't send them. That's why we give them Christian education, because we're intentional. A Christian father says, I want to do what I can to be intentional about the growth of my children. Spiritual growth requires maintenance. And that is true in so many areas of life. I've noticed this new car that we have. My wife drives mostly. Um, It is just an amazing car. I've never seen so many gadgets and buttons and warnings and symbols that you've ever seen in your life. But they've really done a good job at warning you. I've noticed lately we got this little sign there that said our oil value is down to 15%. I guess they're just telling me that you've got a little bit of time where you need to get in there and get that thing changed. Now, they've because they've discovered that if you're going to have a car that lasts a long time, you've got to make sure you give some good maintenance to it. Now, on my 58 Volkswagen, it's not that way. They don't have little dials. They don't have little symbols. You know you got to change the oil when your valves start dancing, and they're making noise, and oh, it's a little different sound than it used to be. Yep, that needs oil. And, uh, but I'll tell you this much. And the same thing is true in our family's life. You've got to be intentional. Maintenance in our family. Intentional about getting the Word into them. Number four, not only relational, scriptural, intentional, but demonstrational. Look at verse 16, wherefore I beseech you, be followers of me. This has to be the most important of all the things we've talked about. It's been said that your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. It is true. What we walk speaks so loud that often you can't hear the words. Spiritual fatherhood means setting a pattern for his children. Here's what Paul said. He said, I have been a pattern for the believers. He goes on to say how he had 
uh, been a pattern for Timotheus and others. But you know, mom and dad, they'll never become what we wanted to be unless they can see it in us. And I will tell you, having raising a child and being a spiritual leader in the home is both the easiest and the toughest job of all. It's easiest because the length of time you have them. Now, as a pastor, we get a, folks for an hour or two, maybe a little more a week, but you don't get much more than that, and not always every week. But as a father, you get them all day long and all night long, and so it's easiest in the sense of the time. It's also easiest in the sense of access. Sometimes it's just hard to find access to people, and when you have them in your home, it's just so convenient to talk. And so it is easiest to have a spiritual impact because of the home, but at the same time, it's the toughest. Because at the home, you can't put on your nice Sunday clothes. You can't put on your church face. No, they see you in the morning when you're, you know, a little grumpy. They see you at night when you're frumpy. They see you at dinnertime when you're hangry, you know. They see you all day long. And here with the Apostle Paul, notice what it says in verse 11. Excuse, um, he said, I want, excuse me, in uh, verse number 16, be a follower of me. That word follower is the word for mimic. Back in the day, we didn't have copiers. We had mimeographs, same word there. Or when a person is a mime, it means to mimic something. Here's what Paul said. He said, I want you to mimeograph me. I want you to mime me. I want you to mimic me. I want you to be just like me. Walk like I walk. I love that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where he says, be followers of me as I am of Christ. Now, some people get it, and they get it quick, and they seem to get a good sense of what Christ is like. Others of us are a little more slow. We're kind of the dull knife in the drawer, you know? Some are real sharp. Other of us, we're trying to figure out, you know, how, what's Christ like? Paul said, here's what, you, here's what you can do. If you don't know what Christ is like, just watch me, because I watch, I'm looking at Christ. I'm following Christ, so follow me. I have flesh on. You watch me all day long. You see how I respond to things. And I will admit there have been many a times pastoring, and there have been many a times as a father, many a times as a, just as a man. It's hard to figure out what Christ would do. So I just remember what a great man of God, a pastor, maybe some author or something I've read, and I let them say, you know what? They're spiritual people. This is what they did. So I'm going to follow them because they're following Christ. And that's what Paul says here. He said, follow me, folks because I'm following Jesus. A dad ought to be able to say, son, watch me. Watch how I act with people. Too bad when a father says, don't do as I do, just do as I say. No, we ought to be able to say, do as I say, but also do as I do. Look at verse 17. For this cause I send unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son. Now, we don't know if Paul had any physical children, but he sure did have lots of spiritual children. And let me just say, for those of you men that are here, maybe you're not married, maybe you are married, but never had children, you know, you can still be a father. That's what Paul was saying here. He said, I sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son, faithful in the Lord, who shall bring in remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. He said, you know what? When you have Timothy, you've got me. It's as simple as that. I have so invested in his life that you've got me. I, it was a blessing when this last time when Pauline and I were there in the Philippines with Pastor Felix. Felix and Norma were in our church for 20 years. 
And so they've started the Bible, the home church, Bible Baptist there in Castileos. And um, what I noticed is that their church is just like ours. It's just a little different. Well, they don't have sides of their walls, but they have music very similar to ours. They have an order of service very similar to ours. They do things just about what we do. And uh, it was very precious and sweet. He just, he, for 20 years, saw how you do church, went there. That's exactly what they're doing in the Philippines. And it's been so successful and exciting. But that's what Paul is saying here. If you've seen me, then you, uh, if you've seen Timothy, you've seen me. And that's what we ought to be able to say. And, he, and then he said, if you've seen me, you've seen Christ, because I want to walk like him. Relational, scriptural, intentional, demonstrational, and educational. Verse 17, but this guy's life I had sent unto you, Timothy. And then he said, who will bring into you remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Principles, not just willy-nilly whatever comes into my head, but scriptural principles. And notice a neat thing about these principles. They are universal. I teach them everywhere in every church. You know, there's this philosophy going around that, you know, that when you're in, you know, Germany, it's all right to have these standards. When you're in America, it's all right to have these standards. No, the Bible said, I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul said, it doesn't make any difference if I'm in uh, Asia Minor, if I'm in Corinth, if I'm in Israel, they're the same principles. I teach them everywhere. I think he was trying to encourage them to realize that they are principles. They are principles. And when you have a principle, it is something you can hang your hat on. And Paul said, I teach them. I just, I'm educational. Our youngest is Abigail. And um, I remind her occasionally of when she was young, all the children asked me things like, you know, uh, who, you know, how do we know who God is? And I remember one day we were driving along and Abigail asked me, she said, she said, dad, how do we know what we are in church? How do we know that we're right? I mean, how do we know we're doing the right thing? I mean, there's so many churches, so many groups out there. And I said, it's actually a very good question, Abigail. And I said, let me just, the only reason we can know that. And so I began to explain that, you know, we've been given something, a black and white contract, something that, you know, has been given for the, through the ages. It's with thousands of years of history. It's called the Word of God. It's never changed. And as long as we're following that, then praise God, we're on the right track. And that's how we know. But you know, uh, you can't always uh, tell them all these things in big theological words, but you just tell them. Early on, uh, I knew that it was important for us to have some time together as a family. And so uh, three times a week, uh, sometimes four, we would have family Bible time. And there was, uh, I forget exactly what time it was now, but um, it was, you know, before we'd start out in the day and we'd have a quick breakfast. And so approximately seven o'clock or so, we had this little family Bible time, anywhere between 15 and 30 minutes. And so we'd uh, maybe sing a song and then we'd... Uh, I'd give them a little theological word. I'd give them a vocabulary word. We'd have a little manners, uh, although I'm not the most mannerly person, but we know I, I was learning them right alongside them. But we'd do that. And uh, so then I would try to teach them. And I saw early on that they were having a hard time kind of listening to me. Their eyes would glass over, you know, and I was trying to tell them some things, you know. And, and so, uh, I, so I decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write on the chalkboard, 
And pretty soon that kind of morphed into taking a little pen, a big uh, magic marker, and writing on a big flip chart. And so then for about 20 plus years, uh, those mornings, I would draw all these crazy illustrations. And it was amazing how simple, but how uh, helpful that was to just simply teach a principle. I like what Augustine said. He said, a wooden key is not as beautiful as a gold one, but if it can open the door when a gold one can't, it's far more useful. You know, fathers ought to just teach their children. You don't have to be a theologian. Just teach them, as it says here, principles that are the same everywhere to every group, whether they be two years old or 20 years old. They're the same principles. You just teach them the best way you can, any way you can. Now, some fathers are very quiet. Others are loud. Some are very somber. Others are quite, uh, you know, uh, quite uh, laughable kind of guys. Others are, you know, can sing it. I, I was thinking about Brother Bruno here, such a great singer. Man, just think about being with your kids, and he probably comes in there and sings songs to them, you know? And uh, our daughter Abigail was telling us that uh, in nursing school, they have a, uh, they have a, uh, a, a song set to the national anthem about where to put all the little points for the uh, EKG. You know, there's what, 12 of those things. And uh, so they sing, oh, say, can you put that on the right arm, then the left arm down the leg. <laughs> and I mean, they have, I was thinking, isn't that something? Here they are in nursing school, and they're singing to them this song about, you know, that's sing to those kids. Or, you know, some of you guys are so dramatic, you know. I mean, come in there with a hat, you know, and a pirate eyeball on and said, I'm, uh, I'm the guy that's trying to steal, you know, your faith from you. But God comes along and you just tell him any story. For some reason, my stories seem to always revolve around Indians. And uh, the kids uh, laugh because I always had the chief, uh, you know, dirty socks of the never washed tribe or whatever it was. And, uh, but you can tell stories. Just, just, you say, do you plan them? Nope, never planned them. Just uh, got a verse and then just just went into it. I have no idea. I mean, I'm sure I said some, fer- some heresy once in a while, but the fact is parents are educational, spiritual dads. You don't have to be a theologian or somebody, you know, like do it like pastor. Just if it's a wooden key, as long as it opens the lock, it works just as good as a golden key. Just make sure you do it. Relational, scriptural, intentional, demonstrational, educational, and finally, You've got to be their parent, parental. To be a spiritual father, you have to discipline. That is the one totally unique function of parenthood. Everybody can teach. Everybody can have a relationship with my children. But I am the only one that gets to beat the fire out of them. I'm the only one. Look at verse 18. Now some of you are puffed up as though I would not come to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them that are puffed up, but the power. You're, uh, you're listening to all these sheep, but the shepherd's going to come, these proud sheep, but the shepherd's about ready to come. Dad is coming home. You're listening to your brothers and sisters, but you need to listen to dad. For the kingdom of God is not in word, mere little words that the, your brothers and sisters say, but in the power of God. And then look at verse 21. What will you... Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? 
He said, I'm going to tell you something, friends. He said, I am a father. I have the right and I have the responsibility of using the rod. And I will use it. I'm not afraid to use it. Now, in 40 years of ministry, I will tell you, there have been a few times where you've just had to sit a few people down and say, it grieves my heart to tell you this. But my dear brother, my sister, you are out of line. And some things need to change. And sometimes there's tears that are shed, and sometimes there's pain. But you've done what's right because somebody needs to tell. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, I need to come to you as a father. Now, the one thing that a father must do occasionally is he must discipline the child because nobody else gets to do that like you do. And that is the one responsibility. I remember, especially growing up with Lynette uh, from a young age, and then um, we had those children, and I always felt like it. Uh, I, I just couldn't leave that responsibility with her. It was just too heavy, way too heavy. And so uh, I would even tell her, I said, all right, you just... Um, you can take care of the little things, but if there's anything at all, just make a note of it, and, uh, and then I'll, I'll deal with it when I come home. And that's uh, so it became a tradition in our home, and dad's coming home. You say, well, didn't that just spoil, you know, you're coming home? Well, uh, it probably did, you know, but on the other hand, I just couldn't feel like that was, I could leave that responsibility with her. I needed to take, that was my responsibility. That was the dad's job. And so, it says the dad's job was to come with a rod. Well, you don't have to, you can do it lovingly. And I think that's what Paul's saying here. He said, I love you folks. I wouldn't, I'm not going to use a rod on you because I hate you. I'm going to use a rod on you because I love you. And notice what he says. By the way, I love what it says in verse 21. Shall I come unto you with a rod? That's a question mark. It's like a father saying, the choice is yours. You can either obey and everything's good, or you don't obey, and I'm going to come down on you. It's your choice. It's interesting how the chapter ends with a question. Shall I come to you with a rod? We don't get the answer. We don't find out what the Corinthians did. <laughs> the rest of the chapters kind of give us a little suggestion. They may have not all done like they should, but here Paul said, you know what? It's in your court. And I think it's so important for parents, especially dads, to teach accountability to their children, to teach them that you've got to take responsibility because who else is going to tell them? I don't think it's fair to let the spiritual leaders of our church have to always call your children on the carpet. I don't think it's fair to give the parent, their principals or the teacher that responsibility. The primary responsibility for the rod is the dad. Now, moms, you've got a part in this for sure. But here's what it's simply saying is, you've got to be willing to look your loved one in the eye and say, there's got to be some changes. This isn't good. And I love you too much just to let you go off. You see an undisciplined child, you find an unloving dad. It's as simple as that. An undisciplined child means an unloving dad. You don't love them enough to tell them what they need to do. Now, I'm not talking about childishness or you know, things like that. It's just kids are that way. But I'm talking about you find one that's way out of control, you will find an unloving parent because that is the responsibilities of a parent is to give them the truth in love. That's what Paul is saying here. Somebody has to hold them accountable. We can't expect the government to do that. We can't expect the spiritual leaders to do that. They'll all do it as much as they can. But we as parents, and specifically 
Paul said, my responsibility is to come to this church with a rod. And sometimes a pastor has to give the rod. You know, I mean, I've seen some people over the years, you know, they don't like to come to church because, you know, they're afraid of accountability. They, they want to turn on the radio and then they can turn off the radio if they don't like what they're hearing. They want to turn on the TV and then they turn it off if they don't like it. But, you know, it's hard to turn off the preacher when he's up here preaching in church. Now, you can walk out and people do that. But uh, one thing, you're not going to shut him up. He's just going to keep on preaching, even when you don't want him to preach. And there have been at a few services, I'll tell you one thing, I've been under so much conviction. I've like, I'll tell you one thing, if you, I got mad at the preacher. I just wish he would stop so I could get to the altar. I was like, okay, you know, how long do you have to stick the knife in and just keep wiggling around, you know? I mean, okay, I've, I'm, you got me, you cut me to the quick. You know, then let me just have a, let me get to that altar because I am under such conviction. You know, thank God that we have those who are willing to say and say very clearly, you know what? Uh, we are here to give you the truth. And that's what a spiritual person does. He wants to make a difference in the lives of others. And here's what Paul is simply saying. He's saying all of us should be spiritual fathers. And I think he's giving us an analogy of really what spiritual fatherhood is all about. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our heads are bowed.